Chapter 43, Part 2 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 43, Last Victory and Death of Belisarius, Death of Justinian, Part 3. The prudence of Narses impelled him to speedy and decisive action. His powers were the last efforts of the state. The cost of each day accumulated the enormous account, and the nations, untrained to discipline or fatigue, might be rashly provoked to turn their arms against each other, or against their benefactor. The same considerations might have tempered the ardor of Totila. But he was conscious that the clergy and people of Italy aspired to a second revolution. He felt or suspected the rapid progress of treason, and he resolved to risk the Gothic kingdom on the chance of a day in which the valiant would be animated by instant danger and the disaffected might be awed by mutual ignorance. In his march from Ravenna, in his march from Ravenna, the Roman general chastised the garrison of Rimini, traversed in a direct line the hills of Urbino, and re-entered the Flaminian Way, nine miles beyond the perforated rock an obstacle of art and nature which might have stopped or retarded his progress. The Goths were assembled in the neighborhood of Rome. They advanced without delay to seek a superior enemy, and the two armies approached each other at the distance of one hundred furlongs between Tagina and the sepulchres of the Gauls. The haughty message of Narsis was an offer, not of peace, but of pardon. The answer of the Gothic king declared his resolution to die or conquer. What day, said the messenger, will you fix for the combat? The eighth day, replied Totila. But early the next morning he attempted to surprise a foe, suspicious of deceit and prepared for battle. Ten thousand Herulian Lombards, of approved valor and doubtful fate, were placed in the center. Each of the wings was composed of eight thousand Romans. The right was guarded by the cavalry of the Huns. The left was covered by fifteen hundred chosen horse, destined, according to the emergency reaction, to sustain the retreat of their friends, or to encompass the flank of the enemy. From his proper station at the head of the right wing, the eunuch rode along the line, expressing by his voice and countenance the assurance of victory, exciting the soldiers of the emperor to punish the guilt and madness of a band of robbers, and exposing to their view gold chains, collars, and bracelets, the rewards of military virtue. From the event of a single combat they drew an omen of success, and they beheld with pleasure the courage of fifty archers who maintained a small eminence against three successive attacks of the Gothic cavalry. At the distance of only two bowshots, the armies spent the morning in dreadful suspense, and the Romans tasted some necessary food, without unloosening the curse from their breast or the bridle from their horses. Narses awaited the charge, and it was delayed by Totila till he had received his last succours of two thousand Goths. While he consumed the hours in fruitless treaty, the king exhibited in a narrow space the strength and agility of a warrior. His armour was enchased with gold, his purple banner floated with the wind. He cast his lance into the air, caught it with the right hand, shifted it to the left, threw himself backward, recovered his seat, and managed a fiery steed in all the paces and evolutions of the equestrian school. As soon as the succours had arrived, he retired to his tent, assumed the dress and arms of a private soldier, and gave the signal of a battle. The first line of the cavalry advanced with more courage than discretion, 
and left behind them the infantry of the second line. They were soon engaged between the horns of a crescent, into which the adverse wings had been insensibly curved, and were saluted from either side by the volleys of four thousand archers. Their ardor, and even their distress, drove them forward to a close and unequal conflict, in which they could only use their lances against an enemy equally skilled in all the instruments of war. A generous emulation inspired the Romans and their barbarian allies, and Narses, who calmly viewed and directed their efforts, doubted to whom he should adjudge the price of superior bravery. The Gothic cavalry was astonished and disordered, pressed and broken, and the line of infantry, instead of presenting their spears or opening their intervals, were trampled under the feet of the flying horse. Six thousand of the Goths were slaughtered without mercy in the fields of Tagina. Their prince, with five attendants, was overtaken by Aspad, of the race of the Gepida. "'Spare the king of Italy!' cried a loyal voice, and Asbad struck his lance through the body of Totila. The blow was instantly revenged by the faithful Goths. They transported their dying monarch seven miles beyond the scene of his disgrace, and his last moments were not embittered by the presence of an enemy. Compassion afforded him the shelter of an obscure tomb. But the Romans were not satisfied at their victory till they beheld the corpse of the Gothic king. His hat, enriched with gems, and his bloody robe, were presented to Justinian by the messengers of triumph. As soon as Narses had paid his devotions to the author of victory and the Blessed Virgin, his peculiar patroness, he praised, rewarded, and dismissed the Lombards. The villages had been reduced to ashes by these valiant savages. They ravished matrons and virgins of the altar. Their retreat was diligently watched by a strong detachment of regular forces, who prevented a repetition of the like disorders. The victorious eunuch pursued his march through Tuscany, accepted the submission of the Goths, heard their acclamations, and often the complaints of the Italians, and encompassed the walls of Rome with the remainder of his formidable host. Round the wide circumference, Narses assigned to himself and to each of his lieutenants a real or a feigned attack while he silently marked the place of easy and unguarded entrance. Neither the fortifications of Hadrian's mole nor the port could long delay the progress of the conqueror, and Justinian once more received the keys of Rome, which under his reign had been five times taken and recovered. But the deliverance of Rome was the last calamity of the Roman people. The barbarian allies of Narses too frequently confounded the privilege of peace and war, the despair of the flying Goths found some consolation in sanguinary revenge, and three hundred youths of the noblest families, who had been sent as hostages beyond the Po, were inhumanely slain by the successor of Totila. The fate of the Senate suggests an awful lesson of the vicissitude of human affairs. Of the senators whom Totila had banished from the country, some were rescued by an officer of Belisarius, and transported from Campania to Sicily while others were too guilty to confide in the clemency of Justinian, or too poor to provide horses for their escape to the seashore. Their brethren languished five years in a state of indigence and exile. The victory of Narses revived their hopes, but their premature return to the metropolis was prevented by the furious Goths, and all the fortresses of Campania were stained with patrician blood. After a period of thirteen centuries, the institution of Romulus expired, 
and if the nobles of Rome still assume the title of senators, few subsequent traces can be discovered of a public council or constitutional order. Ascend six hundred years, and contemplate the kings of the earth soliciting an audience, as the slaves or freedmen of the Roman Senate. The Gothic war was still alive. The bravest of the nation retired beyond the Po, and Theus was unanimously chosen to succeed and revenge their departed hero. The new king immediately sent ambassadors to implore, or rather to purchase, the aid of the Franks, and nobly lavished for the public safety the riches which had been deposited in the palace of Pavia. The residue of the royal treasure was guarded by his brother Arigern at Cumea in Campania, but the strong castle which Totila had fortified was closely besieged by the arms of Narses. From the Alps to the foot of Mount Vesuvius, the Gothic king, by rapid and secret marches, advanced to the relief of his brother, eluded the vigilance of the Roman chiefs, and pitched his camp on the banks of the Sarnus or Draco, which flows from Nuceria into the Bay of Naples. The river separated the two armies. Sixty days were consumed in distant and fruitless combats, and Theus maintained this important post till he was deserted by his fleet in the hope of subsistence. With reluctant steps he ascended the Lactarian Mount, where the physicians of Rome, since the time of Galen, had sent their patients for the benefit of the air and the milk. But the Goths soon embraced a more generous resolution to descend the hill, to dismiss their horses, and to die in arms and in possession of freedom. The king marched at their head, bearing in his right hand a lance and an ample buckler in his left, with the one he struck dead the foremost of the assailants, with the other he received the weapons which every hand was ambitious to aim against his life. After a combat of many hours, his left arm was fatigued by the weight of twelve javelins which hung from his shield. Without moving from his ground, or suspending his blows, the hero called aloud on his attendants for a fresh buckler, but in the moment while his side was uncovered, it was pierced by a mortal dart. He fell, and his head, exalted on a spear, proclaimed to the nations that the Gothic kingdom was no more. But the example of his death served only to animate the companions who had sworn to perish with their leader. They fought till darkness descended on the earth. They reposed on their arms. The combat was renewed with the return of light, and maintained with unabated vigor till the evening of the second day. The repose of a second night, the want of water, and the loss of their bravest champions, determined the surviving gods to accept the fair capitulation that the prudence of Narses was inclined to propose. They embraced the alternative of residing in Italy as the subjects and soldiers of Justinian, or departing with a portion of their private wealth in search of some independent country. Yet the oath of fidelity or exile was alike rejected by one thousand Goths, who broke away before the treaty was signed, and boldly effected their retreats to the walls of Pavia. The spirit, as well as the situation of Aligern, prompted him to imitate rather than to bewail his brother, a strong and dexterous archer. He transpierced with a single arrow the armor and breast of his antagonist, and his military conduct defended Cumae above a year against the forces of the Romans. Their industry had scooped the Sibyl's cave into a prodigious mine. Combustible materials were introduced to consume the temporary props. The walls and the gate of Cuma sunk into the cavern, but the ruins formed a deep and inaccessible precipice. 
on the fragment of a rock, Aligern stood alone and unshaken, till he calmly surveyed the hopeless condition of his country, and judged it more honourable to be the friend of Narses than the slave of the Franks. After the death of Theas, the Roman general separated his troops to reduce the cities of Italy. Lucca sustained a long and vigorous siege, and such was the humanity or the prudence of Narses, that the repeated perfidy of the inhabitants could not provoke him to exact the forfeit lives of their hostages. These hostages were dismissed in safety, and their grateful zeal at length subdued the obstinacy of their countrymen. Before Luca had surrendered, Italy was overwhelmed by a new deluge of barbarians. A feeble youth, a grandson of Clovis, reigned over the Austrasians or Oriental Franks. The guardians of Theodebald entertained with coldness and reluctance the magnificent promises of the Gothic ambassadors. But the spirit of a martial people outstripped the timid counsels of the court. Two brothers, Lothair and Buckelin, the dukes of the Alemanni, stood forth as the leaders of the Italian war, and seventy-five thousand Germans descended in the autumn from the Raetian Alps into the plain of Milan. The vanguard of the Roman army was stationed near the Po, under the conduct of Fulcaris, a bold Herulian, who rashly conceived that personal bravery was the sole duty and merit of a commander. As he marched without order or precaution among the Emilian way, an ambuscade of Franks suddenly rose from the amphitheatre of Parma. His troops were surprised and routed, but the leader refused to fly, declaring at the last moment that death was less terrible than the angry countenance of Narses. The death of Fulcaris and the retreat of the surviving chiefs decided the fluctuating and rebellious temper of the Goths. They flew to the standard of their deliverers, and admitted them into the cities which still resisted the arms of the Roman general. The conqueror of Italy opened a free passage to the irresistible torrent of barbarians. They passed under the walls of Cesena, and answered by threats and reproaches the advice of Aligern that the Gothic treasures could no longer repay the labor of an invasion. Two thousand francs were destroyed by the skill and valor of Narses himself, who sailed from Rimini at the head of three hundred horse to chastise the licentious rapine of their march. On the confines of Samnium, the two brothers diverted their forces. With the right wing, Buchelin assumed the spoil of Campania, Lucania, and Brutium. With the left, Lothair accepted the plunder of Apulia and Calabria. They followed the coast of the Mediterranean and the Adriatic as far as Regium and Otranto, and the extreme lands of Italy were the terms of their destructive progress. The Franks were Christians and Catholics, contented themselves with simple pillage and occasional murder. But the churches which their piety had spared were stripped by the sacrilegious hands of the Alamanni, who sacrificed horses' heads to their native deities of the woods and rivers. They melted or profaned the consecrated vessels, and the ruins of shrines and altars were stained with the blood of the faithful. Buchelin was accentuated by ambition, and Lothair by avarice. The former aspired to restore the Gothic kingdom. The latter, after a promise to his brother of speedy succours, returned by the same road to deposit his treasure beyond the orbs. The strength of their armies was already wasted by the change of climate and contagion of disease. The Germans revelled in the vintage of Italy, and their own intemperance avenged, in some degree, the miseries of a defenceless people. At the entrance of the spring, the imperial troops, who had guarded the cities, assembled, 
to the number of eighteen thousand men in the neighborhood of Rome. Their winter hours had not been consumed in idleness. By the command, and after the example of Narses, they repeated each day their military exercise on foot and on horseback, accustomed their ear to obey the sound of the trumpet, and practiced the steps and evolutions of the Pyrrhic dance. From the Straits of Sicily, Buchelin, with thirty thousand francs in Alamanni, slowly moved towards Capua, occupied with a wooden tower the bridge of Casilinium, covered his right by the stream of Vulturnus, and secured the rest of his encampment by a rampart of sharp stakes and a circle of wagons, whose wheels were buried in the earth. He impatiently expected the return of Lothair, ignorant, alas, that his brother could never return, and that the chief and his army had been swept away by a strange disease on the banks of the lake Venacus, between Trent and Verona. The banners of Narses soon approached the Volturnus, and the eyes of Italy were anxiously fixed on the event of this final contest. Perhaps the talents of the Roman general were most conspicuous in the calm operations which precede the tumult of the battle. His skilful movements intercepted the subsistence of the barbarian and deprived him of the advantage of the bridge and river, and in the choice of the ground and movement of action, reduced him to comply with the inclination of his enemy. On the morning of the important day, when the ranks were already formed, a servant, for some trivial fault, was killed by his master, one of the leader of the Heruli. The justice, or passion, of Narcissus was awakened. He summoned the offender to his presence, and without listening to his excuses, gave the signal to the minister of death. If the cruel master had not infringed the laws of his nation, this arbitrary execution was not less unjust than it appears to have been imprudent. The Heruli felt the indignity. They halted, but the Roman general, without soothing their rage, or expecting their resolution, called aloud as the trumpet sounded, that unless they hastened to occupy their place, they would lose the honor of the victory. His troops were disposed in a long front, the cavalry on the wings, in the center the heavy armed foot, the archers and slingers in the rear. The Germans advanced in a sharp-pointed column, of the form of a triangle or solid wedge. They pierced the feeble centre of Narses, who received them with a smile into the fatal snare, and directed his wings of cavalry insensibly to wheel on their flanks and encompass their rear. The host of the Franks and Alamanni consisted of infantry, a sword and buckler hung by their side, and they used as their weapons of offence a weighty hatchet and a hooked javelin, which were only formidable in close combat or at short distance. The flower of the Roman archers on horseback, and in complete armor, skirmished without peril round this immovable phalanx, supplied by active speed their deficiency of number, and aimed their arrows against a crowd of barbarians who, instead of a cuirass and helmet, were covered by a loose garment of fur or linen. They paused, they trembled, their ranks were confounded, and in the decisive moment the Heruli, preferring glory to revenge, charged with rapid violence the head of the column. Their leader, Simbal, and Aligern, the Gothic prince, deserved the prize of superior valor, and their example excited the victorious troops to achieve with swords and spears the destruction of the enemy. Bukalin, and the greatest part of his army, perished on the field of battle, in the waters of the Vulturnus, or by the hands of the enraged peasants. But it may seem incredible that the victory, which no more than five of the Alamanni survived, 
could be purchased with the loss of fourscore Romans. Seven thousand Goths, the relics of the war, defended the fortress of Kamsa till the ensuing spring, and every messenger of Narses announced the reduction of the Italian cities, whose names were corrupted by the ignorance or vanity of the Greeks. After the battle of Casilinum, Narses entered the capital, the armed and treasures of the Goths, the Franks and the Alamanni were displayed, his soldiers with garlands in their hands, chanted the praises of the conqueror, and Rome, for the last time, beheld the semblance of a triumph. After a reign of sixty years, the throne of the Gothic kings was filled by the exarchs of Ravenna, the representatives in peace and war of the emperor of the Romans. Their jurisdiction was soon reduced to the limits of a narrow province, but Narses himself, the first and most powerful of the exarchs, administered above fifteen years the entire kingdom of Italy. Like Belisarius, he had deserved the honours of envy, calumny, and disgrace. But the favourite eunuch still enjoyed the confidence of Justinian. or the leader of a victorious army, awed and repressed the ingratitude of a timid court. Yet it was not by weak and mischievous indulgence that Narses secured the attachment of his troops. Forgetful of the past and regardless of the future, they abused the present hour of prosperity and peace. The cities of Italy resounded with the noise of drinking and dancing, the spoils of victory were wasted in sensual pleasures, and nothing, says Agathius, remained unless to exchange their shields and helmets for the soft loot and the capacious hogshed. In a manly oration, not unworthy of a Roman censor, the eunuch reproved these disorderly vices which sullied their fame and endangered their safety. The soldiers blushed and obeyed. Discipline was confirmed. The fortifications were restored. A duke was stationed for the defence and military command of each of the principal cities. And the eye of Narses pervaded the ample prospect from Calabria to the Alps. The remains of the Gothic nation evacuated the country, all mingled with the people. The Franks, instead of revenging the death of Bukelin, abandoned without a struggle their Italian conquests, and the rebellious Sinbal, chief of the Heruli, was subdued, taken, and hung on a lofty gallows by the inflexible justice of the exarch. The civil state of Italy, after the agitation of a long tempest, was fixed by a pragmatic sanction, which the emperor promulgated at the request of the pope. Justinian introduced his own jurisprudence into the schools and tribunals of the West. He ratified the acts of Theodoric and his immediate successors. But every deed was rescinded and abolished, which force had exhorted, or fear had subscribed, under the usurpation of Totila. A moderate theory was framed to reconcile the rights of property with the safety of prescription, the claims of the state with the poverty of the people, and a pardon of offences with the interest of virtue and order of society. Under the exarchs of Ravenna, Rome was degraded to the second rank. Yet the senators were gratified by the permission of visiting their estates in Italy, and of approaching without obstacle the throne of Constantinople. The regulation of weights and measures was delegated to the Pope and Senate, and the salaries of lawyers and physicians, of orators and grammarians, were destined to preserve or rekindle the light of science in the ancient capital. Justinian might dictate benevolent edicts, and Narses might second his wishes by the restoration of cities, and more especially of churches. 
but the power of king is most effectual to destroy, and the twenty years of the Gothic war had consummated the distress and depopulation of Italy. As early as the fourth campaign, under the discipline of Belisarius himself, fifty thousand laborers died of hunger in the narrow region of Picenum, and the strict interpretation of the evidence of Procopius would swell the loss of Italy above the total sum of her present inhabitants. I desire to believe, but I dare not affirm, that Belisarius sincerely rejoiced in the triumph of Narses. Yet the consciousness of his own exploits might teach him to esteem without jealousy the merit of a rival, and the repose of the aged warrior was crowned by a last victory which saved the emperor and the capital. The barbarians, who annually visited the province of Europe, were less discouraged by some accidental defeats than they were excited by the double hope of spoil and of subsidy. In the thirty-second winter of Justinian's reign, the Danube was deeply frozen. Sabergan led the cavalry of the Bulgarians, and his standard was followed by a promiscuous multitude of Sclavonians. The savage chief passed, without opposition, the river and the mountains, spread his troops over Macedonia and Thrace, and advanced with no more than seven thousand horse to the long wall which should have defended the territory of Constantinople. But the works of man are impotent against the assaults of nature. A recent earthquake had shaken the foundations of the wall, and the forces of the empire were employed on the distant frontiers of Italy, Africa, and Persia. The seven schools, or companies of guards or domestic troops, had been augmented to the number of 5,500 men, whose ordinary station was in the peaceful cities of Asia. But the places of the brave Armenians were insensibly supplied by lazy citizens, who purchased an exemption from the duties of civil life, without being exposed to the dangers of military service. Of such soldiers, few could be tempted to sally from the gates, and none could be persuaded to remain in the field, unless they wanted strength and speed to escape from the Bulgarians. The report of the fugitives exaggerated the number and fierceness of an enemy, who had polluted holy virgins, and abandoned newborn infants to the dogs and vultures. A crowd of rustics imploring food and protection increased the consternation of the city, and the tents of Sabergan were pitched at a distance of twenty miles, on the banks of a small river, which encircles Melantius and afterwards falls into the Propontis. Justinian trembled, and those who had only seen the emperor in his old age were pleased to suppose that he had lost the alacrity and vigor of his youth. By his command, the vessels of gold and silver were removed from the churches in the neighborhood, and even the suburbs of Constantinople. The ramparts were lined with trembling spectators. The golden gate was crowded with useless generals and tribunes, and the senate shared the fatigues and the apprehensions of the populace. But the eyes of the prince and the people were directed to a feeble veteran, who was compelled by the public danger to resume the armor in which he had entered Carthage and defended Rome. The horses of the royal stables, of private citizens, and even of the circus, were hastily collected. The emulation of the old and young were roused by the name of Belisarius, and his first encampment was in the presence of a victorious enemy. His prudence and the labor of the friendly peasants secured with a ditch and a rampart the repose of the night. Innumerable fires and clouds of dust were artfully contrived to magnify the opinion of his strength. His soldiers suddenly passed from despondency to presumption. And, while ten thousand voices demanded a battle, Belisarius dissembled his knowledge 
that in the hour of trial he must depend on the firmness of three hundred veterans. The next morning the Bulgarian cavalry advanced to the charge. But they heard the shouts of multitudes, they beheld the arms and discipline of the front, they were assaulted on the flanks by two ambuscades which rose from the woods, their foremost warriors fell by the hand of the aged hero and his guards, and the swiftness of their revolutions were rendered useless by the close attack and rapid pursuit of the Romans. In this action, so speedy was their flight, the Bulgarians lost only four hundred horse, but Constantinople was saved, and Sabergan, who felt the hand of a master, withdrew to a respectful distance. But his friends were numerous in the councils of the emperor, and Belisarius obeyed with reluctance the commands of envy and Justinian, which forbade him to achieve the deliverance of his country. On his return to the city, the people, still conscious of their danger, accompanied his triumph with exclamations of joy and gratitude, which were imputed as a crime to the victorious general. But when he entered the palace, the courtiers were silent, and the emperor, after a cold and thankless embrace, dismissed him to mingle with the train of slaves. Yet so deep was the impression of his glory on the minds of men, that Justinian, in the seventy-seventh year of his age, was encouraged to advance near forty miles from the capital, and to inspect in person the restoration of the long wall. The Bulgarians wasted their summer in the plains of Thrace, but they were inclined to peace by the failure of their rash attempts on Greece and the Chersonesus. A menace of killing their prisoners quickened the payment of heavy ransoms, and the departure of Tsabergan was hastened by the report that double-proud vessels were built on the Danube to intercept his passage. The danger was soon forgotten, and a vain question whether their sovereign had shown more wisdom or weakness amused the idleness of the city. End of chapter 43, part 3 Recording by Monsbro, Helsingfors, Finland